Today on Something You Should Know, when women cry, something happens to the men around them. I'll tell you what that is. Then, if you need some motivation to get active in the new year, you need to listen to this. We know that when people go from being less active to regularly active, their brain changes in two main ways. The brain becomes more sensitive to pleasure and joy, so that everything good in life actually feels even better. And exercise also makes your brain more resilient to stress. Also, why do revolving doors even exist? And some people hate making small talk with strangers. But my guest says it's rewarding, satisfying, and something we should all do. The point I'm trying to make is that what you get out of it is emotional rather than getting concrete information or networking connections. You're putting something into a moment, a momentary connection. All this today on Something You Should Know. Support for this podcast comes from Wild Turkey Kentucky Straight Bourbon Whiskey. Let's tune in to their one-on-one with Jamal, a real bartender from Old Fourth Ward in Atlanta. Making you old-fashioned today with Wild Turkey Bourbon 101. It just really stands up very well in a classic cocktail like the old-fashioned. It has that perfect boldness. Wild Turkey. Wild Turkey Distilling Company, Lawrenceburg, Kentucky. Copyright 2020, Campari, American, New York, New York. Never compromise, drink responsibly. Something you should know. Fascinating intel. The world's top experts. And practical advice you can use in your life. Today, Something You Should Know with Mike Carruthers. Hi, welcome to Something You Should Know. Do you have a smart speaker? Turns out that smart speakers are becoming more and more popular as a way to listen to podcasts, or at least this podcast, because I can see it on our statistics that more people are listening on Alexa-type devices. Most podcast listening is done on mobile devices, but if you have a smart speaker, it is a great way to listen around the house without having to put on headphones. And with Alexa, all you have to do is say, Alexa, play something you should know, and she will. First up today, to enter many commercial buildings, you often have the choice between using a regular door or a revolving door. Using a revolving door helps keep dust, rain, and snow from entering the building, and it's more energy efficient than a regular door. But that's not why it was invented. The man who invented the revolving door in 1888 apparently hated, hated having to hold the door open for people, especially women. So he created the revolving door so he wouldn't have to. The first revolving door was installed at a restaurant in New York City in 1899 and quickly caught on because of its ability to save energy. But people don't use them as much as you might think. The fact is they are slower, they require more effort than a regular door, and so given the choice, more people still use the regular swing door. And that is something you should know. This being January, when this episode is released, this is the time of year when people talk about getting fit, getting more exercise. People make resolutions to get more exercise because we all know exercise is good for you. Yet it's somehow hard to get motivated to do it. Well, maybe you need a new approach. Maybe you would move more and exercise more if you believed, as my next guest does, that movement is not only good for you, it actually feels good to do it, physically and mentally. There is a joy to moving, a joy that you may not understand. 
Kelly McGonigal is a research psychologist and lecturer at Stanford, and she was a guest here last summer talking about willpower. Today she's here to talk about movement. Her latest book is called The Joy of Movement. Hey Kelly, welcome. Hi, it's great to be back. So when you talk about movement, as in the joy of movement, what are you talking about? Is it, it exercise, or what do you, how do you define movement? Well, movement is just using your body to engage with life. So that includes the things we call exercise, like running and weightlifting, but it also includes things like going for a walk and dancing and celebrating life. And um, humans were basically born to move, and the good news is that when we move our bodies, whether you think that you're exercising or whether you're having a dance party with your kid in your living room, we know that the brain rewards you by releasing chemicals that increase your hope and your happiness, that make it easier to connect with other people. And the more physically active we are, um, the more people report the things that we want, like meaning in life and purpose. Um, and the especially good news is, is that there's no particular form of exercise you have to do. So if you are someone who thinks that they hate to exercise, there's probably a form of movement that you might actually enjoy, whether it's gardening or lifting heavy things or whatever it is. Um, the idea that there's a particular type of movement you have to do to increase your heart health and you have to burn a certain number of calories or you have to do it in a certain place, um, that's not what the science says. The science says move your body and your brain will reward you. Well, if movement has all these benefits, if movement will bring you all this joy and, and optimism and peace and love and happiness, and as well as physical fitness, why are we becoming less active? Why are people hard to motivate? Uh, why do they have to make New Year's resolutions to try to exercise and fail? Why don't we just do it? Well, part of it is how we frame it. If you only talk about movement as something you have to do to prevent a heart attack 10 years from now or to lose weight. For a lot of people, that just brings up a bunch of stuff that they don't want to feel or they don't want to deal with. And maybe they go to the gym and they spend the whole time looking in the mirror, critiquing their physique. Um, and so part of it is just the, the framing, that we, we kind of miss the actual joys of movement and the benefits because we're so used to thinking of it as almost like a punishment for being alive and enjoying your food. Um, so that's part of it. Another part is, you know, life is busy and complicated. And our environment doesn't always remind us to exercise. So um, we need to often take it upon ourselves to figure out a way to make movement a part of our lives. And again, the good news is, is that most people who think that they hate it have a different direct experience when they find the, the form of movement that works for their body and works in their life. So something I often find myself telling people is not to trust. Your brain will sometimes lie to you and say, oh, you're too tired. Um, you know, I don't have the energy for it, and maybe even tell you that you'll be more exhausted after you exercise, or your brain will, will pretend and predict that you won't enjoy it at all. But, and the, the research shows that it's actually pretty funny. Even people who think that exercise will make them more exhausted and miserable, when they actually do it, they report feeling better immediately and feeling amazing afterward. So sometimes you just have to trust the process and not necessarily listen to, um, listen to the state that you're in before you get the benefits of moving. Well, isn't what you just described part of the, the problem and the resistance is that the good feeling comes after. I mean, I go to the gym, and, and the, the time spent doing it, I don't know that it's all that much fun, but I sure feel good afterwards. But the actual doing, it's exhausting. It's, it's a lot of exertion. Um, it I can do be, and some people find that 
some people do enjoy that. Those are the folks who, you know, are going to the strength training gyms and they feel amazing doing hard things. And like that's something people can sometimes surprise themselves and find that they actually love something that they didn't know they would love until they tried it. But there's also nothing wrong with putting in the time because you want to feel the way you feel afterward. You know, not everything in life has to be extremely pleasurable while you're doing it. So it may be the case that you decide to put in the time because you do feel like you can take on the world and you do have more energy later and you like the way that you feel about yourself. So I think both realities are, are a perfectly fine way to experience it. But I do want to, you know, say, put in a plug. Many people can find a form of movement that they love. And one of the things we know that can enhance that feel-good effect sooner is to pair movement with something that already brings you joy. For many people, it's being in nature. And so, you know, within minutes of going for a walk outside or hiking or swimming outdoors, people immediately feel better, even though they're also working their bodies harder. For some people, it's music. For me, the right playlist can make doing something that would feel miserable, like, like cycling at very high levels of exertion. I would hate that, but you get the right music, and all of a sudden, it changes the way that I experience those feelings of exertion. For some people, it's going to be the people that you exercise with, and maybe you need to do something that allows you to connect with other people. So you don't have to be miserable. Yeah, but don't you think, too, that part of the reason that people resist is this disconnect with expectation, because we see all these beautiful fitness models and people say, well, see, if you use this machine or you, you exercise for 20 minutes a week, you too can look like, well, you can't. You can't exercise 20 minutes three times a week and look like this lady who is probably in the gym six hours a day, seven days a week. I think and, that's exactly right. You know, it's true. You can't choose your body by doing small amounts of exercise and because that's the way movement is often framed, it is. It can be disappointing. And you can miss the fact that actually if you exercise for 20 minutes a week, you can actually start to relieve depression and improve your mood and enhance your meaning in life. Small doses of movement actually have big effects, but it won't necessarily transform your body. Um, and so, you know, I think I'm always encouraging people to turn their attention to their direct experience for the benefits that you can get from very small doses The other thing that I want to say is that the joys of movement are not limited to people who appear to be in good shape, who are young, who are free from physical health challenges or disabilities. There's no size you need to be. There's no health you need to achieve in order to experience mental health and social benefits from movement. And that's why in the book, you know, I talk about people with Parkinson's disease, recovering from traumatic brain injuries, dealing with serious mental health challenges even recovering from grief, a lot of the things that we think of that get in the way of exercise, um, that, that even in those circumstances, and often, especially in those circumstances, finding a way to move your body, often in communities that, um, that support you, is one of the most important things that you can do. Well, I know there are classes and, and programs for people with conditions like uh, Parkinson's disease, where th- these movement classes, I, I don't know if it reverses the, the disease, but can slow down the progression and, and really does help the people that, that attend these classes and programs to deal with their condition. Don't you agree? The research says that it absolutely does, and not only for Parkinson's, but also for Alzheimer's and many other, and depression, other things that we think of as diseases of the brain, can prevent, slow down, or even reverse sometimes the symptoms. I went to a dance class for people with Parkinson's disease. And it was amazing to see how even in just the course of a single hour of music and dancing, 
people were really liberated from many of the symptoms of the, the disease. Um, and it's a, it's a perfect example of how important movement is to our ability to enjoy life. I'm talking with Kelly McGonigal, and she is a research psychologist and author of the book, The Joy of Movement. You know, distracted driving is a serious problem on our roadways, leading to the deaths of thousands of people and injuries in the hundreds of thousands each year. When you take your eyes and your focus off the road, even for a second, it can be deadly. Not just for you, but for other drivers, as well as pedestrians and bicyclists. Sadly, many Americans use their cell phones while driving, whether it's texting, checking emails, scrolling media feeds, or any other form of distraction. Drivers are putting themselves and others around them at great risk. It's important to know that 48 states ban texting and driving. Also, 21 states prohibit all drivers from using cell phones while driving. Distracted drivers are not only putting people at risk, they're also breaking the law. Look, it's dangerous to use your cell phone behind the wheel. That's why law enforcement officers write tickets and enforce hands-free and anti-texting and driving laws. When you're driving, Put down your phone, keep your hands on the wheel, your eyes on the road, and your mind on the task of driving. Remember, you drive, you text, you pay. Brought to you by NHTSA. Support for this podcast comes from Pluto TV. Need an escape? Drop into Pluto TV for a world of free TV. Stream hundreds of channels and thousands of movies and shows all for free. Yeah, free. No subscriptions, no fees. Imagine 24-7 channels of Narcos, CSI, Star Trek, Survivor, and everything else from hit movies to binge-worthy TV shows, the latest news, live sports, comedy, and more. What are you waiting for? Download the free Pluto TV app for Android, iPhone, Roku, or Fire TV and start watching now. Pluto TV. Drop in. Watch free. So, Kelly, what do you think is the minimum dose of exercise? What is it? No, there's like no minimum dose. If you just want to feel better, I always tell people, like, play a song and do anything with your body. And it is, you know, people listening should try this out. You will almost certainly feel better if you just move your body in a way that feels accessible to you right now, whether you, you know, do some yoga stretches or you take a walk or you dance or do some push-ups, whatever it is, um, the, the smallest dose I could find in the research was three minutes, but I don't think that it's actually required. So um, that's the good news. And then for people who are interested in really reaping the maximum mental health or brain benefits of movement, you start to see um, increasing benefits as people are active at least three times a week. So it's something to move toward, um, but there's no dose that is too small to immediately improve your mood. Well, but there is, there is some sort of minimum dose in, in terms of the physical benefits. You can't move for three minutes a week and, you know, see a whole lot of cardiovascular improvement. No, you might not. Um, but if you start where you are and you're able to do three minutes today and you have more energy and you feel more optimistic and you're better able to handle whatever stressful is in your life, if cardiovascular health is your goal um, and you do want to move towards you know, maybe even as much as a couple of hours a week or more, um, getting started by doing something that you enjoy and feeling the benefits of that is really motivating. Um, so don't be afraid to start small. And often when people find the right form of movement, um, they find themselves willing to do more than they thought they would initially. When you talk to people or just your perception of people who don't move much, 
Why don't they move much? You know, a lot of people have had negative experiences when they've tried to exercise. So maybe they show up at a gym and they feel like they don't belong or they feel body shamed because they're not already in what people consider to be the ideal you know, body size or type. Um, for some people, they've had a negative experience where they tried a form of movement and maybe it was too much too soon or it just, it just didn't bring a spark of joy to them. Um, and, and for other people, you know, there are real challenges um, that life can make, can really make the motivation to move not seem as critical as it actually is. And this is true with a lot of aspects of self-care. It's often the things that we need the most, like sleep or nourishing food or movement. When we're in that state of being exhausted or stressed out or overwhelmed, um, we focus on maybe handling an immediate crisis rather than investing in our well-being. And so all of these are legitimate reasons. They're not excuses, but they're things that we can also overcome. What do you find is the best way to begin? I know you said just get up and move, play some music and get up and move, but you know that, that may or may not sustain very long. So, But what does? What work seems to work? When people find a community that they enjoy, that is probably the number one reason that people stay with movement. Um, so I would encourage people who, who really want to make this a part of their lives for whatever the motivation um, to look for a place where when you go to that space, you enjoy being there, whether you join a walking or a running club, whether you find you know, an amazing strength training gym where people are cheering you on for every personal best that you achieve, whether you're going to a, you know, a community center, dance class, or yoga class. Um, because the, the really interesting thing is that when we exercise, it actually creates the brain chemistry of social connection. So we become more social versions of ourselves when we exercise, so it's actually pretty easy to create connections in communities of movement, um, and that's often the glue that keeps people um, while they're you know, taking time to, to also master and fall in love with whatever the movement is. And it's always interested me how, well, I can speak for myself, but I think I speak for other people too, that w- when you exercise and you, you're done, you walk out of the gym or you, you get off the bike or whatever, you feel pretty spectacular. You're glad you did it. I've, I've never heard of anybody doing a workout and going, oh, I'm so sorry I did that. <laughs> um, and, and yet it doesn't seem to last very long. Like the next time seems just as hard as the last time to kind of get the, the momentum going and to try again for a lot of people. I know. I think you're right. In fact, I spoke with some professional athletes near the end of their career who said the same thing. Uh, that, that actually even, you know, professional athletes would wake up and think, I don't want to go for this run this morning. Like people who've dedicated their whole lives to it. There's some interesting quirk about sort of our, the way that we've evolved and how our brains work, where until you're exerting energy, your brain is like, do you really want to do that? Why not just <laughs> conserve that energy? Have a donut. And the truth is that may never go away. I feel the same way. And exercise is one of the most important things in my life. I wrote a whole book about it. And I think that if people think, if they're waiting for that to go away, um, that actually we learn to live with it. Just like sometimes it's hard to get out of bed in the morning and you want to hit snooze, but you also want the benefits of getting out of bed in the morning. So we can do that. You mentioned a moment ago that one of the benefits is that you become more social, that, that it, it triggers that in the brain. Well, what else does it trigger in the brain? We haven't really talked very specifically, concretely about what are the benefits of doing this other than, yeah, I've always had this sense because people have told me that exercise is good for you. 
Well, so there are short-term benefits and long-term benefits. The short-term benefits, um, exercise of any form that gets your heart rate up even a little bit, a really moderate intensity, tends to release endorphins, adrenaline, endocannabinoids, which is the the brain chemicals that cannabis mimics, um, as well as um, endogenous uh, opioids and even oxytocin. So these are all neurochemicals that make us feel better, make us feel pleasure, that reduce stress and anxiety, that relieve pain. That's the feel-good effect, and that's, that just happens while you're doing it, and it can persist sometimes for you know, an hour or longer afterward, that feel-good effect. But what I'm really fascinated by is the long-term effects. We know that when people go from being less active to regularly active, their brain changes in two main ways. The brain becomes more sensitive to pleasure and joy. So all of those systems I mentioned that you get an immediate boost from, they actually become more responsive over time. The reward system changes its structure. It actually exercise remodels your brain so that everything good in life actually feels even better. It's one reason why exercise is so um, effective for depression. And exercise also makes your brain more resilient to stress. So it, it remodels the brain in a way that helps you recover from trauma, that um, helps you control anxiety. And these are huge effects. And the studies show that you know, if you've never exercised before, it takes about six weeks to start to see some of these longer-term changes. So again, something I often find myself recommending to people is if you're just taking on a new movement um, commitment, see if you can make it to six weeks with this promise that your brain will, you'll literally have a different brain after six weeks. Since you've researched pretty deep into this, what do you find or what do people tell you or what's your sense of the big payoff here that maybe people don't think about or aren't aware of until they do it? I would say that so many people told me that movement changed how they thought about themselves and what they were capable of. You know, I remember in my own, so I've taught movement classes for two decades. I still remember the time um, this woman in her 50s did a headstand for the first time. And when she came down from the headstand, she couldn't stop laughing because she was so amazed that she had done it. And she literally was like, I have no idea what else might be possible in my life because anything seems possible after she was able to master um, holding herself upside down after you know, decades of thinking that she couldn't. And I heard from so many people, whether it was lifting a heavier weight than they'd ever thought they could lift um, or finishing a marathon, that, that people would reach these movement milestones through not, not you know, incredibly intensive training, but just showing up and doing what you might think of as a, you know, a regular workout, but that there was something transformative about learning that they could grow and change in this way. And uh, I think that's one of the biggest psychological benefits of, of taking up a new movement. Anything else we haven't talked about that you think is really important for people to get, yeah. especially well, this, this time of year? I know listeners love new science, and I will say that the most interesting insight um, that I discovered researching the book was something called hope molecules. And this is, we now know that our muscles are endocrine organs that secrete chemicals into your bloodstream when you exercise. And some of those chemicals prevent cancer. Some of those chemicals um, prevent heart disease. But some of the chemicals that your muscles secrete into your bloodstream when you exercise prevent depression and make you more resilient to stress. And the, the scientists who discovered them called them hope molecules. So I think this is fascinating. And the only way to get them into your bloodstream so they can reach your brain is to contract your muscles. And any movement will do that. So any movement that you're willing to do is like an intravenous dose of hope. 
Well, that's very motivating, especially this time of year when so many people say, yeah, this year, this is it. This is the year I'm really going to do something. And, and, you know, often people say that and fail. But often it's because they set a pretty high goal. And what what you're saying, the good news sounds like, is that it, it you don't have to work out four hours a day, seven days a week to, to see some benefit. Nope. Do what you can now. Listen to your body. Follow the joy and pay attention to your direct experience. And, and if you do, I have faith that people will, um, will be able to follow through this time. Great. Yeah. Kelly McGonigal has been my guest. She is a research psychologist and lecturer at Stanford University. And her book is called The Joy of Movement. And you will find a link to that book at Amazon in the show notes. Thanks, Kelly. Thanks so much. Do you own or rent your home? Sure you do. And I bet it can be hard work. You know what's easy? Bundling policies with GEICO. GEICO makes it easy to bundle your homeowner's or renter's insurance along with your auto policy. It's a good thing, too, because you already have so much to do around your home. Go to GEICO.com to get a quote and see how much you could save. It's GEICO easy. Visit GEICO.com today. That's GEICO.com. Everybody loves game shows. Everybody has a podcast. I've got both. Hey, everybody, I'm Kyle Brandt, and my new show, 10 Questions, is a game show talk show. Athletes, movie stars, everybody will come on, not just to talk, they come on this show to compete. 10 questions that, whether they know it or not, are somehow inspired by a moment in their life or their career. 10 questions. 10 points, so much fun. Head over to Spotify and please follow 10 Questions with Kyle Brandt. When you meet a stranger on a plane or a train or in line for coffee or the grocery store, do you enjoy those conversations and find value in them? Or do you dread them as being pointless conversations that don't mean much? And maybe it depends on the situation. Sometimes they're fine, other times not so much. But talking to strangers is something we all have to do. And if you're in the right frame of mind, maybe it's a good idea to step up and try to make it more meaningful. That's what Keo Stark believes. Keo has been deliberately talking to strangers for a long time. She is, and these are her words, obsessed with talking to strangers. She created a TED Talk about it and wrote a book about it called When Strangers Meet. Hi, Keo. Thanks for coming on Something You Should Know. Hi, thanks for having me. So you're obsessed with talking to strangers, and I know people who are obsessed with with not talking to strangers. And I know sometimes I feel like that. Most people feel like that, that they really want to avoid that chit-chat with a stranger because they're not in the mood, and, and rarely does it seem that there's a whole lot of value in it. Well, first of all, I forgive you for not wanting to talk to strangers. Um, and well, so, I would never twist anyone's arm about it. Well, I don't know. I'm not, I'm not yeah. saying I never want to talk to strangers, but okay. haven't you ever been on that flight where you just want to be left alone or you don't, you're sitting at the airport and you don't want to talk to that person? Absolutely, 100%. Oh, well, um, there are situations when I feel open to it and there are situations where I feel totally trapped by it. I have pretended not to speak English before. I have held up a giant book to my face to not have to <laughs> talk. This is on airplanes, particularly, where you can't go anywhere. Right. But in terms of why I do like to talk to strangers, 
there are a couple of reasons. The, the most visceral and immediate thing for me is that it is a kind of intimacy. Uh, you can call it fleeting intimacy. That's the sort of sociological term. Um, it makes you feel good if it's something that you're wanting. Making very brief little human connections, feeling uh, like you belong, like you're being recognized and seen. These are actually really important moments that add up to sort of fulfilling our general need for intimacy, which, you know, we think of as something we get from people we're close to, but momentary closeness is also a, a very grounding and, and satisfying thing. So one of the reasons that I think people don't like talking to strangers is they don't necessarily see the value in it. The talk is very surfacey. It's, hi, how you doing? Fine. And where are you from? It doesn't go anywhere. It doesn't mean anything. And when you part company, nothing ever comes of it. So why bother? Yeah, that's a great point. I think the thing to remember about talking to strangers is that it's about a social connection. It's not about information being exchanged. So if you want to, to get very technical about this, um, social scientists and linguists call this phatic communication, which means that it is not uh, about exchanging facts or factual information or necessary information. It is uh, social information. It is saying, I see you. Hello. How's the weather? Um, if you can understand that as a moment of connection, that changes what you expect from it. I, I don't really love talking about the weather either. Um, I do find that that's the thing people will say if they are trying to reach out. You can just smile at people and it has almost the same effect. Um, if you're not expecting anything lasting or deep um, conversationally out of these exchanges, you can see and feel that what they're doing is making you feel socially acknowledged and located. Which sometimes we like having happen and sometimes we don't. Yes, absolutely. Sometimes the last thing you want to do is interact with anyone. And I also often don't want to interact with people. When I meet people at conferences, for example, they think that I'm going to want to be like talking to everyone and I hide in my room half the time. Um, Whenever it's a sort of forced situation, um, like on an airplane, like at a conference where it's expected of you, I immediately don't want to do it and feel overwhelmed. And I'm the, like, expert. Right. You're the expert at this. But you, <laughs> So you just said a moment ago that when we look for a return on our investment in these kinds of things, we're often disappointed. Mm -hmm. Yet you must get a return on your investment. You wouldn't do this if you didn't. So what is the return on your investment that you look to do this, that you, uh, by your own words, are obsessed with this, because you must get something out of it. Absolutely. Um, I think the point I'm trying to make is that what you get out of it is emotional, uh, rather than getting um, concrete information or networking connections or a relationship that lasts. You're putting something into a moment, a momentary connection. Um, for me, as someone who is extending myself to a stranger, and again, this can be just by smiling, by saying hello, it could be by making idle chit chat with someone, um, 
what I get is this feeling of recognition, of connectedness, of we're having a human moment here to absolutely individual people. Also, people that you smile at, if it's in the right circumstances, will you can feel that they are happy that you have opened yourself up to them. Um, there are also a lot of situations where it quickly turns into what I would think of as a real conversation, meaning it's not about the weather, it's about something more personal. Um, I don't mean someone telling you their innermost secrets, but sometimes when you ask someone how they're doing, it's this kind of routine communication that's actually just an acknowledgement. And sometimes somebody will say like, you know what, I'm having a rough day. And then you ask them why, or you say, I'm sorry to hear that. Um, and as long as they're not someone who is kind of inappropriately opening themselves up to you, that can be a really nice thing to take a moment and you can walk away from that feeling like, oh, that was a person that I just talked to in this world of strangers and big city. Another reason that people, I think, don't look forward to talking to strangers and avert their attention, avert their eyes, is because they don't really know what to say. They don't know how that conversation's supposed to go other than the usual, hi, how are you, uh, what's new, or, you know, or wh- whatever it is yeah. you say. You don't know how to, and it feels kind of phony, and so what's the advice? Sure. I mean, if you're... If you're looking for um, help about starting a conversation, then we're not talking about, you know, you're passing someone on the street and smiling and saying hello. We're talking about you are sitting next to someone on a train or a plane or waiting in line or any of what we might think of as transitional spaces um, that are more kind of open to people interacting. And I like to think of it as what's a question you could ask someone that would give them space to tell you a story. So if you ask somebody what they do for a living, that can be as little as a one sentence answer. You know, I'm a writer, I'm a radio host, I'm a lawyer, I'm a teacher. If you ask somebody, what did you do today? Or, um, you know, let's say you're on a plane, like, why are you going to Chicago? What, you know, what's going on for you there? One of the things about interacting with strangers and getting some sort of pleasurable result from it is you have to kind of push just ever so slightly on the line of what is socially conventional. So you're asking someone a direct question, which is walking just a centimeter over the line of privacy. Um, The person may not want to answer that. They may say, you know, oh, just business or it's an opening for them to tell you a story. And I think that's what it's really all about is creating openings. There are also, um, and this is more related to kind of street situations, but I think it would apply in a conference or at a party. There are a couple of known strategies for starting conversations with people or starting interactions. The first way is making eye contact. That's going to give you a lot of information about whether somebody wants to be open to an interaction or doesn't. You can look them in the eye. If they look at you and smile, great. If they look away, then you leave it alone. Um, And that one's particularly useful in the present moment for um, men who are talking to people on the street and may want to be friendly to a woman in the neighborhood, for example, you know, 
pay attention to the eye contact and be really respectful of it. The second thing is, if you're making eye contact with someone, just smiling, just saying hello, that often turns into a little bit more of an exchange. It may also just have this kind of social comfort effect. After that, um, there's an idea of triangulation, which basically means there's you, there's another person, and there's some third thing between you or around you that you can use to start a conversation. In public space, this might be something like public art or you know, some disruption going on, some construction. It might be some child doing something strange or entertaining. Um, the idea is that it's a sort of neutral thing that you can open a conversation about rather than asking the person a personal question about themselves. They can see it too, they can comment on it. That may start a conversation, it may turn into the person saying, oh yeah, that kid is cute, and then turning away. Part of what has to go on here is a sort of sensitivity to people's social signals, like gaze, like what they're doing with their body, like whether they are using those things to continue a conversation or to end it. I like to give people compliments. Um, I'm sort of famous for giving people compliments on their shoes. One of the reasons for that is that I think shoes are kind of fabulous. Another reason for that is they're very neutral. When you comment on someone's shoes, you're not really commenting on their personal appearance. You know, it has nothing to do with their body. I would only compliment someone on their shoes if they were genuinely worthy of compliment. And someone who is wearing something um, beautiful or delightful or unusual, chances are they're going to want to take the compliment on that. And a lot of the time, there's a story that goes with the fabulous shoes or hat or whatever it may be. I don't advise commenting on people's clothing. That's just too close to the body itself. And these conversations, once you get in them, sometimes are awkward to end. Like they, you're, you're standing at the party at the dip table and you kind of run out of steam, and, but there you still are, and now what do you do? Yes, yes. So we talk about this in terms of exit strategies from a conversation. There are social signals you can use uh, to suggest that you would like to exit the conversation. Those have to do with starting to physically remove yourself, taking a step back, for example, um, even if it's a small step, there's kind of a radius of conversation that's acceptable. And this really changes from culture to culture and situation to situation. But if you back out of whatever feels like the normal conversational range, then you're suggesting, okay, I'm, I'm done here. You may need to have a concrete thing to say I've got to go get another drink. You know, I'm, I have to check on my kid. The, my phone is ringing. Um, I would always, at a party particularly, or a conference, go into it with a couple of exit strategies planned. Anything that's polite, you don't want to say to somebody, I think I'm done talking to you. Uh, that wouldn't be very kind. And most of the time, people take those things for what they are, which is an ending to a conversation. I have plenty of times said to someone, I, am, I need to go get another drink, but I'm really coming right back. Like, stay here. Because I think that I have to go get another drink is generally a signal that I'm done here. 
There's also one interesting thing about interactions is that there can be a power dynamic in a conversation that's ongoing. And in that case, the person who has more power or clout in the situation is the one who has the right to end it. And the person who has less power may feel less um, less authority to end the conversation or to start giving these exit signals. I think one of the reasons people shy away or don't like talking to strangers, and at least initially, is that fear of rejection, of that fear of you're going to try to start a conversation with someone who has no interest in talking to you. My experience is... That doesn't happen very often, that usually people are grateful, especially like at a party, if they're the only one kind of off by themselves, they, they're thankful that you came over and started the conversation. Nevertheless, it seems that people are afraid of that rejection. I think you're absolutely right. A great party strategy, as you say, is to find somebody who looks like they're on their own or feel awkward and go talk to them. Chances are they are alone and awkward, not because they're unpleasant or have bad breath, just because they're awkward or haven't gotten comfortable in the room yet, or they're waiting for the person that they know. And walking up to someone and saying, hi, I'm Keo, generally starts a conversation, uh, particularly with the person who's by themselves. It's interesting how we, we sometimes fear rejection, but how many times has it ever happened where someone has just, you know, just rejected you out of hand when you tried to start a conversation. It, it doesn't happen that often, I can't imagine. It hasn't happened to me. When people have positive experiences with another person, with another type of person, they become more comfortable pretty easily. It extends from an individual to whatever group you think that individual belongs to. This is called the contact hypothesis. And it really works. It really happens. There's also the problem that a negative experience with some individual person or a person you identify with the group kind of weighs more than the positive experiences. So I do want to tell people to be careful with their emotions in, in practicing like that. If you have too many negative experiences, it's going to be really hard to keep trying. But if you try it five times, you're probably going to have a good result for most of them. Somebody will be open and cheerful about interacting with you. Well, I know the expectation is not that, you know, this is going to turn into your new best friend, but the fact is that your best friend was once a stranger and you had to talk to him once the first time. And so, I mean, there's always the potential that, 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 yeah. that it could. I did a um, book giveaway on Twitter recently where I'd asked people for their favorite stranger interactions. And I, you know, I got 20 or 30 answers and half of them were stories about, I started chatting with somebody on a plane or at a train station or something. And now they're my best friend. I was, I was surprised. I've never had, uh, expect, I wouldn't have expected that many people to have that kind of an answer, that percentage of the answers. So yeah, you never know what's going to happen with any of these interactions. But if you go into it expecting that, you'll be disappointed. If you go into it expecting to have a nice little moment and it turns into something more, then you'll be delighted. Well, whether you like it or not, you're going to be talking to strangers. It's, it's kind of what we do. So might as well do it right. Keo Stark has been my guest. 
She's obsessed with talking to strangers, and she's author of the book, When Strangers Meet. There's a link to that book and to her TED Talk in the show notes. A woman's tears can be a powerful tool, so powerful they can shut down a man's desire. In a study, scientists showed a group of female volunteers some sad movies and collected their tears. They then asked the male volunteers to sniff the tears. Some were real tears and some were just saline. A whiff of the real tears caused testosterone levels to drop significantly. Women's emotional tears contain a chemical sign that reduces sexual arousal in men. And that is something you should know. Are you one of those people that listens to podcasts but never leaves a review or anything? Do me a favor and just this time make an exception to the rule and leave a review for this podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. I'm Mike Carruthers. Thanks for listening today to Something You Should Know.